Marcelo has a ministry called Walking in the Promises. He speaks on this kind of stuff all the time um, nationally. And he's written some the second book coming out real yeah. soon. Birthing it. It's that kind of a thing. Uh, the Ouch. first one's already out. So he's really an expert in this. But the other thing I wanted to say is that he has personally impacted me big time about family. I mean, there's very few people that have impacted me by his example and his teaching in the area of family, in the area of um, being a good husband, uh, being a good father, those kinds of things. And um, I think you guys are really, really going to be blessed by him. So Thank you, bro. This was a passage, this text that was assigned to me by, by the leadership, and I have to say that this exercise has been an exercise of glorified frustration, because frustration on several levels, because I don't measure up like what I'm going to teach. I'm teaching as a learner, as a pilgrim, not as an expert, okay? But also, there's so much here that God would have us know. And uh, I talked to Eric a little bit earlier in the week, and I, I just said, I have about 100 pages of notes. What do I do? And since Wednesday, because I only have two weeks, I've been hacking away at it, this jungle growth of notes. And so we'll see how far we get. I have two main points, and we may only finish one, but it'll be the main point. So um, one of the things that has happened in terms of just glorious results is that I've gained a new appreciation for marriage in God's eyes. Um, guys, God loves marriage. He created marriage. He designed marriage. It's precious to him, and it's the only institution in all of creation that accurately reflects the love relationship that Jesus has with his people, you and I, the church. Uh, this passage, as it were, pulls back the curtains and gives us a, a greater understanding of the high calling, the high privilege, the high value of marriage, and not only how we should relate to one another as husbands and wives, but also of how Jesus relates to us as a people and vice versa. And you can expect when something is so special and so valuable to God, something that's so esteemed in his eyes, you can expect when something is so precious to the Lord, it's going to be attacked by the enemy, right? And Satan has been applying the full measure of his skills to denigrate marriage, to confuse it, to distort it, to demean it, to erode it, and as much as possible to destroy it in the lives of families. Not surprisingly, in my opinion, no institution has been so viciously attacked as marriage has in the last 100 years, save the church itself. We've seen wave after wave of cataclysmic attacks on, on marriage. Over the past century, we've seen the rise of radical feminism that has sought to degrade the value of marriage and, and by redefining and redis, or distorting the roles of men and women within the, the marriage union. The authority structure that God has set up within marriage is derided and laughed at. In fact, for example, the very idea of a wife submitting to her husband is seen, or is seen as outdated, ridiculous, and if not downright offensive. We've seen the rise of the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. Um, that was an amazing time. I was just a little kid. You know, I came here from Argentina when I was seven years old, 1966, and 
came during the height of the civil right unrest and all that kind of stuff. But then within a 10-year period, we literally went, culturally speaking, we went from Ozzy and Harriet and Father Knows Best and shows that really bore me. But we went from that to the mainstreaming of pornography that has continued to spiral today. Pornography is available to every house that has a computer and has got Wi-Fi. We came a long way in a short time, way down. Uh, we, we went from Buddy Holly and the Crickets, doesn't that sound like, ah, happy, to, we went to the doors, man, okay? Things really changed. The sexual revolution pushed for what they called free love, which was basically sex when you wanted it, how you wanted it, with whom you wanted it, whenever you wanted it. And that became the prime directive of, of a whole new generation. And during this morally confusing time, this, this season of our, of our country, of our culture, really worldwide, um, the sexual desire of people became the chief goal. That became the rallying Christ, sexual freedom. And that led into the sanctity and the purity of marriage because sex was no longer to be bound by the marriage covenant. And of course, this, this attitude of freedom being the chief goal led to the Holocaust of abortion because pregnancies are just an inconvenient byproduct of sex. Babies get in the way of sexual freedom. And that's why the argument for abortion, even today, is built upon the rotten scaffolding of choice. Because you can't base it upon life, the value of life, because sexual freedom is, is king. So you talk about reproductive rights and sexual freedom, etc. The 60s and 70s, we saw a full frontal attack on the sanctity and the purity of marriage and the fruit of marriage, which is children. And in many ways, our culture is still reeling from that punch, isn't it? Today, we are also seeing the aggressive advocacy of, de of a determined homosexual lobby and their political allies. And they are aggressively working to redefine what marriage is altogether, from a man and a woman to two men or two women. And they have been extremely successful. As of last count, <coughs> pardon me, which is July of 2014, 20 states, including Washington, D.C., uh, uh, recognized same-sex marriages. That was unthinkable years ago. What's more, as a result of the 70s and 80s in, the, in our postmodern, post-Christian culture, the rise of young people living together to try to figure out if they want to get married has literally skyrocketed. And that, of course, has undermined marriage itself, and it has led to a, a, just a, an increasing growing number of divorces and shattered families, of course. Satan has been working overtime on the family. Because if he can distort it, pollute it, tear at it, destroy it, then he can blind people to a great degree of the saving glory of the gospel. Because marriage is a stage for the gospel. When, when I'm convinced when people see thriving marriages, they are drawn to Christ in Christians. And, and for those of you, and I, my heart reaches out to you, who come, probably everybody in this room has been touched by divorce somehow. Maybe you've gone through one. Maybe you're a single parent, a single dad or a single mom. You know what? 
you can stage in your life that not only Jesus saves, but Jesus heals, right? And he restores. It can, it can come slowly over time, but, but the power of God, he can use our lives, even our brokenness, especially our brokenness, to stage the gospel. So marriages, especially, stage the gospel for people to see. They're drawn to Christ through the gospel. It, it gives them an idea of the amazing relationship that they can have with God Almighty. And so what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks, husbands and, and wives, excuse me, is, is very, very important. Our earthly joy definitely is tied to it, right? I don't know of anything that can make people more happy or more miserable than marriage, but also our ability to effectively proclaim the gospel is tied to the health of our relationship with our spouses. And the text that we will be looking at in the next two weeks is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, but I'm not going to jump in at 22. Because I think that's something that's frequently done when people go to Ephesians 5. They want to jump in to the, the 22 and begin to outline the do's and don'ts of, of husbands and wives. And the reason I'm not going to do that because, is because that hamstrings us. And it hamstrings us because verses 22 through 33 are part of a broader context. In fact, it, it's the foundation that Paul lays to teach about marriage and the other relationships that, that Eric made reference to that Paul attacks or talks about in chapter 6. And this whole relational side of Ephesians is traced back to verses 15 through 21 of chapter 5 and especially verses 18 through 21. And there are two key components that kind of lay the foundation for our discussion or Paul's discussion on marriage. And I just want to share them with you before we actually begin to look at the text. There are two things that we want to look at that set the, the context for Paul's discussion on marriage. And the first is found in Ephesians 5, verse 18, and it is the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Before Paul starts talking about marriage, he says, and you need to pursue this. You need to be controlled or filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can't unpack all of that verse if we don't have the time, but what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, it, it is not to be confused, first of all, with receiving the Holy Spirit. When you and I trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, at that moment of salvation, we receive the person of the Holy Spirit. He comes to live inside of us, all right? And that's why Paul says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You can't have some of him, a part of him, most of him. You get all of him at the moment of salvation. He comes to reside in you, in me, in his people. The filling of the Spirit is also not to be confused with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That happens at salvation too. In fact, when you get saved, your birthday date, your spiritual birth date, it's like Christmas. You get all these gifts. You, get, you receive the Spirit. You are baptized with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You get gifts. The Lord just bestows everything on you that you need. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at salvation. That's when Christ takes us at the point of belief 
and through the person or by the person of the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. And at that point, we become connected with everybody who is a believer in the world in a real and tangible way. We share the common life of God together. We are tied to each other. We share that kind of relationship. I remember a few years back, <clears throat> excuse me, I was in a ministry trip teaching somewhere. I can't even remember where it was. And I was at a restaurant. I had ordered my meal. And I was waiting and I had my Bible open. And I was reading through it. And then all of a sudden I, I sensed, I saw to the periphery of me that there was somebody standing by my table. And I looked up and there was this tall black guy with a big smile on his face. And, you know, it's like, hey, hey. And um, he pointed at my Bible and he said, that's a good book. And his smile got bigger and I said, yes, it is. And I, I asked him, do you love the Lord Jesus? And by that time, his, his smile was wrapping his head and he was <laughs> so happy. And he said, yes, I do. And we talked warmly for a few minutes and we said goodbye warmly. He left to go eat his meal. I ate my meal. I haven't seen that, that man since then. But I know one thing is that he's my brother. <laughs> and I remember being struck by the amazing thing that through the Holy Spirit, I am more closely and intimately and deeply related to this man who comes from a totally different background than I do than I am to, to members of my own family who don't know Jesus Christ. We are tied together. The, the life of God courses, as it were, through our spiritual veins. We are baptized into the body and connected intrinsically and beautifully and organically to every other Christian in the world, not only in the world, but those who have gone on before us. So what is Paul's exhortation then to be filled with the Holy Spirit? If it's not receiving the Spirit, if it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what is Paul's exhortation to be filled with the Spirit? Paul's exhortation is this. It is a command for Christians to continually live under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is to allow the Word of God to come in to us and submit to that word by the Spirit's enabling power. It is to have the mind of Christ, which is revealed in the Scripture, and to allow that truth to inform our thinking, to shape our behavior, and to touch our emotions, always depending on His power to allow us to live that out. One commentator put it this way, and I, I, I really like the way he put it, so let me read that to you. He said, Being filled with the Spirit is living in the conscious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, letting his mind through the word dominate everything that is thought and done. And the immediate consequences of being controlled or filled by the Holy Spirit, there's a public and private sense, but it expresses itself in joyful singing of praise and thanksgiving to God. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says, speaking to one another, this is the public benefit of being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's the private side. Giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. When we submit ourselves to the Spirit, Spirit's control, 
When we submit ourselves to scripture that fills our heart, God, in turn, puts a song of joy in our heart, a song of gratitude in our heart to God. That's basically what the filling of the Spirit means. Let me share with you another scripture, Colossians 3.16. This verse also teaches us about being filled with the Holy Spirit, and it states it similarly but differently. Listen to the first part and then the second part. Colossians 3.16, you probably know this verse. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you see the similarity there? It's, it's almost verbatim of Ephesians 5.18. But the difference is, is in Ephesians, Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Colossians he, Colossians, he tells us in the parallel passage to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. In other words, the word of Christ is God's word. Richly means superabundantly. To dwell or dwell within you means to let it in and be at home at. And as we do that and submit to that word, we're living under the conscious control of the Holy Spirit. And God fills us with joy and thanksgiving to him. Being filled with the Spirit, then, is living life in His presence, influenced by His Word and under His control. And it is only under that kind of divine influence, guys, that we can live out what Paul calls for in Christian relationships. Because I will tell you one thing, that we are called to live and to love in a way that does not come naturally to man. At least it doesn't to me. Please amen with me because I, all of a sudden it's like, oh no, I'm the only one who struggles with this. <coughs> yeah, well, you know, marriage, here we go. <laughs> marriage is a blessing and, and a great gift from God to all mankind. And it crescendos as a blessing and a gift when a Christian woman and a Christian man unite together in marriage. God sings at that point. But let me tell you something. It is not without its difficulties, right? Because you have the joining of two beautiful people who are sinners, who are saved by grace and changing. But there's tension there. And quite frankly, the, the thing that makes Christian marriage so, so wonderful and advantageous for Christians is that God has not, not left us to work through our marital challenges alone. And he has not left us unequipped. He has given us his word and he has graced us with, with his indwelling Holy Spirit so that we may love, forgive, respect, live in a way that normal people can't. That rises above our natural means. And that's why Paul doesn't start his instruction on marriage with this is what you got to do, these things. He first tells us that we must be filled with the Spirit so that we may live and love supernaturally as God wants us to love. So, that's really contextually an important point you and I need to understand about marriage. Marriage, Christian marriage, is fueled by being Spirit-filled so that you can love your wife as you should and love your husband as you should. That's contextually very, very important. A second point that's very important to marriage, before Paul launches out on, on his uh, treatise on marriage, 
is the whole principle of mutual submission. Contextually, uh, the, a key component to, the, to Christian relationships, and including and especially marriage, is the principle of mutual submission. Verse 21, he, Paul tells us, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The term subject, submit there, has the key idea of humility, and this is outlining the Christian principle, because we are to submit ourselves to one another, to Christians, that we are to hold other Christians as more important than ourselves. This was the, the teaching, the life, the example of the Lord Jesus, right? In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfless, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of other, others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul says we are to have an attitude that holds everybody else, our Christian brethren, as more important than ourselves. And that is motivated by the fear of Christ. What does that mean? Well... Jesus is our God, correct? He's our Savior. We owe Him everything. He means everything to us. We reverence Him. We revere Him. We, we worship Him. And Jesus, our Master, loves His people with an intense love. He bore their sins. He suffered the wrath of God Almighty on the cross for them. He died for them. He was buried for them. He rose again. He ascended for them. And Romans 8.34 says that he ceaselessly prays for us, for his people. He doesn't stop praying. And because we love him and he loves his people so deeply, then the people whom he loves ought to be our concern. That's what Paul is teaching. And that kind of concern, my friends, that kind of mutual submission to each other's needs is fueled by the Holy Spirit. And here's the point. <clears throat> Pardon me. This mutual submission, this heart attitude of holding each other up as more important than ourselves, guys, must, must be carried into marriage. There are some of you in this room who are, who are considering marriage, who want to get married. And we usually, are, are, um, our view of love is, is so much fashioned by media in the world. And we, when we fall in love, it's, you know, she makes me feel or he makes me feel so happy. I feel so complete. I'm, she, he or she makes me feel loud and on and on. And that's all right. That's, that's cool. That's part of what God built into this thing. But we need to start looking at each other as more important than ourselves. And, and come into marriage with a mindset of, I need to serve this person, and their greatest, greatest need is sanctification, that is a transformation into the image of Christ. What can I do to help them towards that end? In Christian marriage, there is a spirit-filled mutual submission that seeks the continual best for the spouse. And that's the foundation on which Paul teaches about Christian marriage. Spirit-filled selflessness. And there are two points that I would like to cover from this text, which I won't. 
I'll at least do the first one. We're looking at verses 22, 24, and 33. We'll, we'll cover the main thing, okay? The, the first thing is that I wanted to talk about was the prescription of God for wives. That is, what does God require of Christian wives? And secondly, I wanted to look at the paradigm for wives, or what example does he exhort them to follow? But let's park on that first principle, and it probably won't get much beyond this here. So, God's prescription for wives. And this is, this is the, really the point of the passage. If I can summarize in a, in a simple phrase or sentence what God expects of you ladies, it is that you submit yourselves to your husbands. Okay, That's what you're heading into in Christian marriage if you're a gal looking to marry. You're looking to subject yourself, submit yourself to your husbands. Look at verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. In verse 33, the last half, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Submission. This sounds like such an outdated, old-fashioned word to men and women today, doesn't it? I mean, to some people, the precept sounds offensive, as we said, and for others, just disrespectful. What do you mean the wife needs to submit to the husband? Really? Well, that sounds sexist. This is like something the Taliban would demand of, of women. And so the world in general just rejects this principle outright. In fact, some even within the professing church who don't accept the authority of Scripture rejects this, reject this principle. And that's because when they hear submission, the submission of wives to their husbands, what do they think of? They think of, of all the abusive behavior that they've seen and, and women have experienced through the centuries, dealt out and doled out by aggressive, bullying, self-willed, self-serving male chauvinists. And women have suffered and do suffer under the oppression of unkind, brutal men today. Man, if you're a football fan and you pick up the paper, you've been deluged this past week with the Ray Rice story, right? The running back for the Ravens who, who gave a, a devastating left hook to his fiance, punched her in the face, knocked her out, and all the information that came out, it literally made my knees shake and made me sick to my stomach. And that colors and distorts the whole discussion, doesn't it? It lingers in our cultural air. And when a Christian says a, a Christian wife ought to submit herself to her husband, immediately the, the world thinks, oh, it's that Ray Rice thing. Huh? No, that's sick, man. Not into that at all. Submission under, under that paradigm looks at women as objects to be dominated for the selfish whims of selfish men. In this kind of thinking, women are reckoned as second-class citizens who are somehow less valuable than their husbands, or to all men for that matter. They're looked at as people who are weaker and who are inferior and must capitulate to their male superiors. Let me just say this in no uncertain terms, guys. This is not the abject Submission that the Lord is calling for from Christian wives. I mean, it, it's not even close. It's not in the same discussion. It's not in the same ballpark. It's not in the same universe. 
it, I'll tell you something. It really frosts me. When I hear this, this issue, this doctrine of the wife's submission to the husband twisted and distorted and mongrelized by piggish men or by feminists, neither of whom understand the beauty of Christian marriage, God is not calling his daughters to blindly grovel at the feet of their husbands or any man. That's never in the deal. So what does the Lord mean by this, that wives ought to be submissive to their husbands? I want to give you six aspects of Christian submission, if you want to write these things down, um, that arise out of the text that are either implicitly, clearly implicit, or that are just stated very clearly. Six, six aspects of biblical submission that will help us understand what Paul, what God is talking about. The first aspect, and by the way, we're going to rip through these really quick, okay? The first aspect of biblical submission, submission of wives to their husbands, is this. Remember and consider the context. <laughs> context, context, context. Remember the context in which God charges wives to submit. This charge is given in the same context as we have seen, where God calls spirit-filled, spirit-empowered Christians to submit to one another. That is, to hold the best interests of other Christians, including spouses, up above their own. To hold their interests near and dear to your heart, just as Jesus does all the time. In that context, Paul instructs wives to subject themselves to their husbands. And the word subject means submit. It's an old military term that means to arrange under, to submit oneself. And Christ does call Christian wives to place themselves under the authority of their husbands. But again, in the context of a spirit-filled mutual submission, this is not a call for husbands to dominate. This is not a, a pretext for chauvinism. This charge is given within the context of mutual, spirit-filled selflessness. Remember the context. Number two, and let me just, before I mention it, acknowledge that this principle of women, Christian women submitting to their husbands, raises up a lot of questions, especially in the ladies. And some of you inside, you know, I know this question is floating around. You're going, oh, 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 oh but wait. Are there any conditions? Are, are there any exceptions to this rule? I mean, have you met my husband? Just say. Well, the answer to that, the short answer, and I'll explain it in a minute, is no. But there is a caveat. Now, you say, that sounds contradictory. What do you mean? Well, your husband, ladies, cannot ask you to violate your conscience. Your husband cannot ask you to participate in a crime. Your husband cannot ask you to violate scripture, including anything that may be harmful to you, such as abuse. That is not God's will. So sin aside, that said, one aspect of biblical submission that is, is clear, and we need to understand, is that there are no conditions. And we'll see that this is true of the husband's responsibility next, next, next week, too. God does not say, wives, submit yourself to your husbands if he's got it all together. Because we'd all be rebels by now, right? 
He doesn't say, submit to your husbands if they're well qualified. This is a command that comes from Christ, regardless of qualifications, regardless of your husband's abilities, his education, his knowledge of the Bible, and even his Christian maturity. There are some of you ladies that know the Bible better than your husbands, okay? There are some of you ladies who are more forceful and effective vocal leaders than your husband. There are some of you ladies that are spiritually more mature than your husband. But that or any other qualification does not put you in a position of leadership in your home. The Lord has placed your husband in a position of authority within the marital relationship. That's what he calls for. And this leads us to a very important third principle. Remember the context, no conditions. Thirdly, your husband's authority is a positional authority, not a qualitative superiority. Let me just say that again because it's very important. Your husband's authority is a positional authority, not a qualitative superiority. You know, it's important to understand what the text does not teach. The text is not saying, wives, submit yourself to your husbands because he's smarter than you, or because he's more informed or qualified than you, or because he's qualitatively better than you. Not at all. I mean, the, the New Testament makes it clear that God is no respecter of persons, correct? No. There are literally no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul, the same author who gives us this instruction, also said in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Race is erased. He says there is no, neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no social classes in God's kingdom. They're obliterated. And then he says this, amazing. There is neither male nor what? Nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The cross absolutely levels the playing field there, guys. We are all equally beloved before the Lord. And yet, the Lord has established structure in the family for the sake of harmony. God has put your husband, ladies, in a position of authority in your relationship, and that structure is for your benefit and that of your family. And that's a positional authority. It's a structural authority. It has nothing to do with quality or value. Let me give you just one example. There is a positional authority and structure within the Trinity, right? God the Son submits to the Father's will. How many times did Jesus say that in his life, earthly ministry? He came from heaven because the Father willed it. When he was at Gethsemane, he didn't want to go to the cross, but yet he said, not my will, but what? Yours be done. The, the God the Son submits to God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit it proceeds and is sent from both the Father and the Son. That's not based on a qualitative superiority because all the members of the Godhead are equal it's an established authority for the sake of harmony and function. And God has given you a husband, ladies, if you're married, with authority over you so that you can relate to one another harmoniously as a family and so that God may, may pour out his blessings for 
the structure of the family that he has established. Okay, so remember the context. I'm leaving out a lot of stuff. No conditions, husband's positional authority. Fourth principle is this that helps us understand what submission to husbands means. The marital submission of the wife is a submission of her own volition. Marital submission of the wife is a submission of her own volition. She comes under her husband's authority voluntarily. This is not something that can be demanded. This is not a coerced submission. And the grammar totally makes that clear. The, the verb in verse 21, verses 21 and 22 are actually one sentence in the Greek. And the verb, it's actually a participle, is in the middle voice, not the passive voice. And this is the big deal about that. If that verb were in the passive voice, the text would read, and women are subjected to their husbands. In other words, she is being acted upon by an outside agent to submit. That's not what the text reads. It's in the, reads, it's in the middle voice, where it literally reads, and the wife subjects herself to her husband. This is a willing Loving submission. It's, a, it's not the kind of dic, um, uh, submission you would give to a dictator. It's the kind of submission you give to all your brothers and sisters in Christ and that you especially give to the Lord Jesus. So gentlemen, your wife's submission is not for you to demand. It is for your wife to give. It's of her own volition. All right. So remember the context, no conditions, husband's positional authority and the wife's submission is of her own volition. Fifthly, submission of the believing wife is for, is, excuse me, is to her husband is God's design. This is God's design. Just by virtue of the repetition of this command, this is what God wants. This is his design for you. As we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, you know, when you, submission has gotten, gotten a bad rap, when you mention the word of biblical submission of wives to husbands, or people scowl because they assume that that's a demotion, a downgrade, a subtraction of rights, but not at all. Submission of the wife to the husband is God's design for the wife. It is the role that God has created for you. It is rooted in creation before the fall. 1 Corinthians 11, 8, we'll see this next week in Ephesians 5, 31. And listen, here's the, the simple point. What God designs is for our good. Agreed? Amen. What God, the, the only way he behaves towards us is in grace and truth and goodness. Therefore, what God designs is for our good. This is God's role for you, ladies. What he created for you, it is for your good. It's not simply law. Or a have to do. This is a prerogative. You know what a prerogative is? It's a privilege, right? Here's the New Oxford American Dictionary's definition of prerogative. A prerogative is a right or privilege exclusive to a particular individual or class. In other words, submission to your husband, ladies, is a right. It is a benefit established by God for your good and the good of your family. Don't let the enemy steal this away from you. Amen. Submission is God's design. And sixthly, lastly, we're pretty much ended with this. 
Submission, the wife's submission, ladies, is directed, as the text reminds us, to your own husbands. Not that you have multiple husbands. That's addressed to a plural <laughs> group. You don't want more trouble than you have, right? One is enough. <laughs> Oy, you shouldn't have more than one because it's a lot of trouble. I know, I am one. Um, but your submission is directed to your own husband. Two things here, real quickly. The first is obvious. A wife submits only to her own husband. Women are not inferior to men and therefore subject to all men. There has been some extremely bad chauvinistic interpretation that you know, has led some fringe groups to believe that women should just be subject submissive to every guy. I remember talking, walking, as we were talking with a guy who uh, believed this. He was in a fringe group, and the Lord has since delivered him from it and changed his whole perspective. But we were walking, we were talking about our wives, they knew each other, and uh, he ended up saying, then he went into this diatribe of, on women, and he said, all women should be submissive to all men. I go, really? Where do you get that from? And he said, well, look at like uh, the example that Mary, when she came, Mary, the sister of Martha, came to Jesus, at, fell at his feet, she washed his feet with her hair, or her tears, she dried his feet with her hair, and that shows us in principle that women should be submissive to men. My jaw just like dropped. I reached down, picked up my teeth and tongue, and rolled it back into the hole. I said, dude, you're just missing one little thing. Jesus is God? You know, and he is worthy to receive our worship. And me and you, we ain't divine, bro. <laughs> Ladies, not that you're tempted to fall at the feet of any of the guys in this building, but just so you know, when married, your allegiance in terms of submission is to your own husband. We're supposed to be submissive to one another in humility according to our needs, and we're supposed to be submissive to our leadership, but in terms, everybody's submissive to leadership. Your submission as a woman goes only towards your husband. A second thing, that little phrase, your own husband, what, what does it denote? Well, what does that sound like, your own husband? You know what it sounds like to me? Ownership, doesn't it? Your husband's ladies are far from being a boss or some detached executive, you know, handing down decisions from on high. Your husband is your own possession. The language here speaks of a personal, exclusive, unique possession. This is your man. And guys, in other words, she owns you, my brother. <laughs> you belong to her. This is the person you are leading. She owns you. You are her possession, her precious possession. This sheds a totally different light on this principle of submission, doesn't it? He is your own possession. So that's God's prescription for you ladies. God's call for, your, for you in marriage, your chief responsibility towards the Lord regarding your husband and towards your husband is to submit to your husband's leadership. Now, real quickly, what does that look like practically? I wanted very much to be able to talk to, about this at length, but I just don't have the time. 
I think that the attitude of submission and the actions of submission are beautifully summarized for us in one word. It's found in verse 33, and that is respect. Look at the last half of verse 33. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The term respect means literally to fear, to be filled with awe, to revere, to reverence. And here in the New American Standard, my translation, it's a very good translation of this word, respect. This is to recognize the position that God has placed your husband in as the head of your relationship and the head of your home and the corresponding, corresponding honor or respect you, you give to him. Like the respect we have for a police officer or a fireman or a doctor, we recognize that their position is there for our benefit and we esteem them. That's the idea. This means that respect privately, if I can just put a little hook on it, privately, ladies, you choose to see your husband for whom God made him to be in your relationship. Your head, your leader. You choose to see him because that's who he actually is before God, okay? You choose to see him for who he is. That's privately. Publicly, you choose to honor him with your words. Very important. Let me tell you something. It's very easy to build up a dossier of failure for men, for husbands. I know because I have one in my head. And every guy here knows that we're, we're, we're not perfect husbands. Far from it. And it's very easy to take those things that we know about our husband or that you know about your husbands and share them with family or girlfriends to kind of gain support for your end of things, right? Gain sympathy for yourself. Honor him with your words, ladies. I can tell you something. If you want to dig dirt on me, the person who would know the most dirt about me is Val, my wife. She's lived with me, put up with me for 31 years. But if you go to her, that is the best place to dig dirt and the last place you should because you won't get any. She will not tell you what a jerk I can be. <laughs> she just won't. Because she always speaks well of me. She respects me. She honors me with her words. And I am, not because I deserve it, but because she respects me. And lastly, just domestically, it means that you honor your husband's leadership and his decisions in the home. Doesn't mean you can't disagree with him. Doesn't mean that you can't vociferously express your opinion and your desires. Doesn't mean that you can't oppose, literally be unhappy with one of his decisions, but it means that you follow him and honor his leadership. Well, guys, that is the main prescription for wives, to submit to their husbands willingly out of an obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ.